Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We need to know you. That is our deepest need. We pray that as we spend this time in the letter to the church in Colossae, that we will hear you speaking to us in your words. We pray your Holy Spirit will be at work in each one of us to bring us to a deeper knowledge of you. For your glory, Lord. Amen. Some of you may not be aware, most of you probably are aware, that this is a bit of a strange moment in the life of Eden. It's our first Sunday without Julian as senior pastor. And I guess there are a lot of mixed feelings about coming to church, a lot of uncertainties of what's going to happen without Julian's calming presence in the role. And I was trying to think of a, a way in which to describe it, and the picture of a paperweight came to my mind, that when the paperweight is lifted off, a gust of wind can come and kind of blow all the papers away and scatter. I think that's probably uh, one of the things that I'm feeling. Perhaps some of us are also feeling a bit more like a bit of paper today, just wondering what's going to happen to us in the next few months. And perhaps not just in this, perhaps also in other areas of uncertainty in your life where something that you had thought was stable, something that you'd thought was a constant, is taken away from you. And you don't know what's going to happen. Perhaps you have fears about your future work or your, your, the future of your family life, the future of your health even. And what do we need when we're in these times of, of uncertainty, these times of change. When we're going through these seasons, what we need is something heavier than a paperweight. And that brings us to Colossians. Why are we doing the book of Colossians other than it is on the very next page after Philippians, which we were in last week? I'm going to explain with two legends and one truth. The first legend is about Colossae, the city that Paul is writing to the church in, a city in what is now Turkey. And the legend is the city is named after one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes. Probably not true. The second legend is the Colossus of Rhodes itself. Have we got a picture there on the screen? There it is. Uh, this was an actual historical statue um, of the Greek sun god Helios, and it was built about 300 BC. It was built at the entrance of the harbor on a Greek island called Rhodes, and you can see it's this huge statue. The actual size was um, about the size of the Statue of Liberty, but you can see in the artwork here there's a bit of exaggeration. So that, that little red square that you can perhaps just about see, that's a boat passing under the legs of the statue. The statue didn't stand astride the harbor. That was just impossible for them to build. Um, it was an exaggeration in the minds of me medieval artists who later wanted to kind of glorify this era. So they increased the size of this statue in the legend. And then in the second picture on the right, the, the boat is even smaller. It's so tiny that you can't even see it. And by the way, this is a terrible way to carry a bowl of soup. It doesn't work. 
But this is, this, the colossus is where we get our English word colossal from. It means something that is huge, something that is enormous, something that towers over everything else on our horizons. And I think that is actually relevant to what we're doing here. Not that Paul intended that link, but maybe it's a helpful kind of hook for us because in his letter to the Colossians, Paul is painting a picture for us not of two legends, but of one truth, of one colossal Christ. He knows that in times of uncertainty, we need a towering Christ that is bigger than all of our problems. Not a bronze statue of a false god towering over a harbor in victory only to fall on its face 50 years later in an earthquake. No, he shows us the one true living God towering over the whole universe in a victory that stretches out into eternity. And he stands astride the entrance not to a safe harbor in Greece, but to eternal safety in a kingdom of light. So I'm going to read some verses from not the passage we'll be looking at today, um, the one we're hopefully looking at next week, Colossians 1 verse 15 to 19. But as I read those, just hold in your mind that picture of a colossus, of this giant statue, just to help you kind of latch on to the the colossal significance of Jesus here. Stand at the foot of the statue, as it were. Just let him fill your vision. Let him tower over you. As Paul says this, the sun is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. I'd happily just go on reading, but this is kind of next week's reading. But my point is that as we go through this whole book each week, we need to keep in our view that colossal, Christ. We won't understand anything that Paul is saying in this letter unless we keep our sights on this towering Christ standing astride the universe in victory. This is a Christ who rules over all in love and victory and who has something to say about everything because there is nothing that is outside of his lordship. So I'm going to read verse 1 to 14 in a moment and see Paul will, will emphasize the, the weightiness, the, the kind of the long shadow that is cast by Christ throughout the whole world, he's going to say. He's going to say we are able to be strengthened with all power. Those things can only happen because Christ is standing astride the universe in victory. And so if senior pastors are like paperweights, they are put in place by someone far weightier, someone far more powerful than the winds that scatter the papers. He is sovereign over the wind and the paper and the paperweight. 
And we still have this Jesus. I think you know that. But I'm going to say it. We still have this colossal Christ towering over Eden Baptist Church. You know this. And actually, it's far better than some giant, powerful figure who just stands over us and watches from a distance. Jesus isn't just astride the church in the way Paul describes it. He is the head of the body, the church. There is a unity here. There is a much closer relationship going on, as close as that between your head and your body. And now let's come to verse 1 to 14 and take a look at what this life in Christ looks like, what life under the shadow of the colossal Christ looks like. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you, from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. If that description of a statue towering over you felt a bit cold or or perhaps even intimidating, his life lived under the shadow of Christ is actually far warmer, far more welcoming. That's captured in a couple of ideas that appear twice in these verses that are repeated in verse 6 and then again in verse 10 where he talks about bearing fruit and growing. Bearing fruit and growing. So perhaps a better picture than a statue is one of those huge trees in the rainforest where it provides shade, it provides support 
for all kinds of other plants to grow under and around it. It provides a home for all kinds of animals to live in it. Jesus fills the universe that he rules over with life. That was true in creation. It is true in salvation too. He rules in a way that gives fruitfulness and growth. This is the kind of life that is lived under a colossal Christ, a fruit-bearing life and a growing life. Let's look at each of those in turn, a fruit-bearing life. He opens his prayer in verse 3, as he often does, with what he's thankful for. I think there's something to take away from that, that he has an attitude in prayer of rather than looking around and starting with what's wrong or what's needed, he looks first for where is God at work? Where is God at work? What, what has God been doing already that I can thank him for? And he's had this report from Epaphras, and he can thank God that the Colossians have a fruit-bearing life. And for him, the fruit of life in Christ is two of these three kind of central activities of the Christian life. It is faith and it is love. In verse 4, we always thank God because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all God's people. He thanks God because these things have come from God. Faith in Christ Jesus is that looking upwards to Jesus for help, and they are doing it. In verse 2, he addresses them, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. He thanks God that they do this, that they're full of faith. Because who is there better to put our faith in? Who better than the one who has supremacy in everything? They're putting their faith in him. They're not just looking up to ask for help from problems in the present and fears in the future. They're looking to Jesus to ask for help for the forgiveness of sins. Looking to him for rescue from the kingdom of darkness that they are stuck in. And so when we look around, we find ourselves and each other looking up to Jesus for help. When we see that, even in the middle of, of doubts and fears that we may have, when we see that, that is from God. That is God at work. We can thank him for it. And then that outward-looking love for all God's people. When we're brought back into a right relationship with God, that brings a healing in our relationship with others made right with God. In the language of verse 13, we're brought into the kingdom of the Son, who God loves now. It's a kingdom founded on and ruled by self-giving love. And so, of course, it's going to be a kingdom in which the citizens love one another. And again, to the extent that we do look outwards, that we do care for each other, that we do show kindness and gentleness with each other, that's the fingerprints of God in this church. And we can thank him for it. But what do we do when we feel we are lacking in faith or love? When we feel that the amount of faith or love that we have is not enough for the season or the situation that we're in. What do we do when it is hard to trust God, when we face an unknown future? 
where we're in a new kind of situation, one where perhaps we didn't realize or think that this would be an area of life that we, we had to put our faith in God for. What do we do? Or what do we do when the paperweight is lifted off and our love and unity with one another is stretched and tested in new ways? My other picture than the paperweight is the rock in the garden being lifted up. And under the rock is all the creepy crawlies, all the bugs that were hidden, and they start to crawl out. In a a season of change where where stability that we we once had has been lifted away slightly, sometimes some of the bitterness, some of the negativity that was kept in check by that long period of status quo can start to poke its ugly head out into the sunlight again. What do we do when we are short on faith? What do we do when we are short on love? In answer, Paul turns us to that third Christian activity, hope. There are a couple of different ways we can speak of hope. We can speak of hope as the activity that we do of putting our hope in Jesus. But here Paul is speaking of hope as the object of what our hope is in, of Jesus as our hope. The faith and love, verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Here he's speaking not so much of the activity of us putting our hope in Jesus, of us looking forward to the return of Jesus, as he is of the the solid reliability of Jesus as the one to put our hope in. If we were to dig under the faith and the love that the the fruit that is growing up in Colossae, what we would find at the root is hope. A hope in heaven, a hope of being with the one who is in heaven. A hope of a day when everything is going to be made right, when we are going to be with God forever in this life of ultimate blessedness. And for Paul, because that hope is so powerful, so strong, it kind of spills over from the future into the present. Hope is not just something good in the future. It is also a solid, sturdy root to grow faith and love from in the present. And so when we're lacking in faith and love, when we're struggling to trust God in something, when we're struggling to love people in something, we need to go back to our hope, go back to that root and check it's in good condition. Spend some time examining the root. And Paul is confident that the root is in extremely good condition. In verse 5, he goes on to talk about a hope about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. Not an imaginary hope, but hope in a message that is true, a true announcement of God who has become human, to die under God's judgment in our place to be raised to guarantee us our victory over sin and death. And that truth for Paul is demonstrated in the effectiveness of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is demonstrated in the effectiveness of the gospel because in verse 6, it is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. It is working. 
It's working because it's true. And here we are thousands of miles away, thousands of years later. The message is still working. Here we are, faith, love, and hope. It is still working because it's still true. He briefly mentions Epaphras in verse 7 and 8 because Epaphras has contributed to that fruitfulness by telling people the message of hope. And that's something that Paul is going to pick up on later in the letter of how we can join in with that spread of the gospel, with that effective work of the gospel. But for now, he is thanking God for a fruitful life, for a life of faith and love that spring up from a certain true hope. Then in verse 9, he slightly changes his angle. It's still about a prayer for them. It's still part of his prayer for them. But he shifts from what he is thankful for to what he is asking for. He says, we've not stopped praying for you. They already have faith, love, and hope. But he's asking not just for a fruit-bearing life, but a growing life. Friends, the Christian life is not a stagnant pool of swamp water. It is a vineyard. It is an orchard that is planted by God for increasing fruitfulness. For the fruit to just keep getting bigger and juicier and sweeter each year. And so he prays for them. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Lord that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. He keeps asking that they would know God's will, that they would understand God's will. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by asking that they would know the will of God? Is he asking for a list of commands, of do's and don'ts of what God wants us to do and doesn't want us to do? Or in verse 1, he said, Paul said, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Is that, does that what, is that what he means, that he's asking that they will discover what job God wants them to do? It's often those are the terms in which we think when we're, we're seeking God's wisdom, when we're asking what God's will is. And that's not entirely wrong. It's not wrong to bring those questions to God. And he does, in fact, have commands and lots of things to say about how he wants us to live our lives. And he can give us guidance and wisdom on how to use our time and energy. The framework of all that is written down for us in the Bible, in the Word of God. But I think we need to be careful when we're talking about understanding the will of God not to depersonalize this to be something separate from God, to be some kind of list of things that God wants to happen. To make God's, finding God's will, a simple academic exercise of reading a book. Paul speaks of God's will here in terms of a relationship. It's the Spirit who gives understanding to us. The third person of the Trinity enters our hearts. He meets us directly, personally. And as we read the Bible on our own, as we hear it read and preached when we come together, we pray that the Spirit who wrote the Bible works in us to impress on our hearts what God's will is for us. 
And God's will is far more personal than a list of instructions. As we go through this next bit of the the letter, let God address your heart personally. Just open, open your heart. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you that he would reveal to you the the beating heart of God's love for you, of what it is that he wants for you, of his will for you as his child and for us as his church. And now here are four things that God wills to grow in our lives. First, he wills that we have a life growing in pleasing God. Verse 10, so you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. This is the life God wills for you, the life in Christ that the Spirit works to bring about in you. When God wants to be pleased by us, he's not willing that from a position of having his back turned, of being this kind of really busy God or really grumpy God, and he said, try and impress me. Come on, what have you got? And we have to win him over somehow. He knows that you can't please him on your own. And so when we're talking about God willing that we please him, we're talking about a God who has taken the initiative in that who has thrown everything necessary into making that happen. He sends his very best to ensure that you can please him. He sends his one and only beloved son to cover your sins, to remove them from the equation of your relationship with him, to deal with them, to pay for them. He sends his Holy Spirit to empower you, to give you the strength to be able to do what pleases him. He does that. He does everything that is necessary so that he can then look on you with a smile and say, I'm pleased with my child. A life growing in pleasing God. Second, the Spirit brings us a life growing in knowing God. Verse 10 again, growing in the knowledge of God. God's will is not, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts or jobs that you should apply for that he just parachutes in to your life from above. God's will, God's desire, God's heart is that you know him. Not that you fill your life with doing stuff for him, but that you fill your life with him, that you know him, that you know him in all his goodness, in all the kindness of his love revealed in the glory of his son, Jesus Christ, come speaking himself into our lives as one of us. That's God's will for you. Life growing in knowing God. And as you know him, the Spirit brings you into a life which also grows in receiving help from God. In verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. 
Remember that picture of Jesus standing above the universe as its creator, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. I said this already, but the life worthy of God is not something we have to achieve on our own. The the God-pleasing activities of loving others, of keeping going in faith, that is a job that God has rolled up his sleeves to throw all his glorious might into. Now, over the next few months, some of us are going to have to step up in ways we hadn't before. Some of us are going to be busier than we had been before. This is, I'm speaking to those, um, but I'm also just speaking generally that if that's you, if you have any situation where you have to take a step up in faith or a step up in love, remember that this is not just a responsibility that is growing. You are also growing in being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And finally, the Spirit brings us a life which is growing in thanking God. Verse 12, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Back to the gospel, back to the true, powerful gospel, because this is where we see our colossal Christ in all his glory. This is where we grow up best under his shadow. Each time we come back to the gospel, our hearts are warmed up to give thanks to God, not begrudging thanks, but joyful thanks. Joyful because we don't live in darkness anymore. We don't live in a kingdom of sin and death anymore. We live in a kingdom of light, the joyful kingdom of the light of the world, a kingdom ruled over by one who could have been the judge that condemns us but chose instead to love us so much that he died to redeem us to pay the price of our sins. And we thank God with joy that we therefore do see the fruit of faith and love and hope as we look around. And as we do so, let us join Paul in asking that we also might increase, that we also might grow in this life in Christ. This is God's will. This is God's will so we can be confident that this is a prayer he's going to answer. So let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the faith and love and hope that we have in this church. And as we look into our own hearts, we thank you for the faith and love and hope that is there. Lord, it seems so weak, so fragile sometimes, but we thank you that this speaks 
of your work that is started in our hearts. And we pray that that work might continue, that these things might grow up in us as we know you more. We pray that we would live those lives that please you, that we would enjoy giving thanks to you, that we would enjoy sitting in the shadow of Christ, basking in the glory of the true and powerful gospel. We thank you that this is your will for us. We thank you that you long that we have this beautiful, blessed life. We pray that you would help each one of us discover it and work it out for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.